come on a journey with a cinephile. to episode 19 of journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as always your tour guide david garrett jr here recording out of columbus ohio now on this episode is going to be centennial club three where i have the golem from 1920 being paired up with the dark red which was made in 2018 but you'll see why i'm featuring it here in this review of it and then i also have five mini reviews that'll be of zombie child dr jekyll and mr hyde from 2000 eyes without a face cloverfield and hold that ghost now what i'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to a musical break before i get into the mini reviews i 
Okay, and for my first mini review of this week is going to be Zombie Child from 2019. This is written and directed by Bertrand Bonello. It stars Luis Labaque, Vislande Loma, and Katinia Milfort. This is a fantasy film from France. This is currently sitting on a 6.1 on IMDb and a 3.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a man is brought back from the dead to work in the hell of sugarcane plantations. 55 years later, a Haitian teenager tells her friends her family secret, not suspecting that it will push one of them to commit the irreparable. Now, this is a film that I debated whether or not to see in the theater. I don't normally watch trailers, as I like to come in blind to movies, but I did catch part of this one. I'm assuming it was when I was at the Gateway Film Center with my girlfriend, and I didn't like to be on my phone when, you know, we're together. So, when we go to see a movie, I usually kind of get forced to watch the trailers. Now, this one did intrigue me with the title, and I thought that it possibly could be horror. Now, to kind of just give a little bit more background information before I get into it, is we have a man named Clarvis Narciss, who's portrayed by Mackenzie Bijo. He is in Haiti, and we see a preparation of a voodoo ritual, and then he passes away. We then get to see a funeral where his wife is taking his death quite hard. At that night, Clarvis is removed from his casket and herded together with other zombies, and they're taken to plantations where they are forced to work. But now these are zombies that are not in, you know, the traditional Night of the Living Dead or like the Walking Dead. This is more of a throwback to something like I Walked With a Zombie, where they're mindless creatures that are undead but are able still to kind of do normal things. This movie also shifts to present day Paris with a story that runs concurrently with it. And this is where we have our main character of Fanny, who is Lebeke. She goes to a special school for children that are bright, but also students that have distinguished parents or grandparents. Now, she's longing for breaks so she can see the, quote, love of her life, unquote, of Pablo, who is Syed El Alami. And she also has a sorority of sorts with three other girls, and they befriend a Melissa, who is Laumat. She was originally from Haiti, but due to the earthquake in 2010, she had to relocate to France. Her parents didn't make it, and she lives with her aunt. Now, the first thing I wanted to say is that... Uh, these two stories run concurrently but do intersect for the ending and i also wanted to lead off here that 80 percent of this movie i wasn't sure if i was going to do a review or not on the internet movie database it is listed as i said as a fantasy film which i definitely think that is it i would even say that this is probably drama as well now there is an event that is alluded to in the synopsis that gets really creepy to the point where i decided to write this and as I was also doing a little bit of research, if you look on Netflix, this is in the saved section if you want to get the DVD. And there it is listed as being a horror, so I definitely thought that it warranted, you know, me writing a review and doing this recording here. And I kind of want to cover the horror parts first. We keep learning that things about voodoo throughout this movie, so that shouldn't come as a shock. A ritual is performed and it is coupled with a character explaining the dangers of doing something like this. I like that they're given the history of the religion, and even more so when they introduce the character of Baron Semedi, who in this movie is portrayed by Nehemi Pierre Dahomey. I first learned of this entity from James Bond as there was a villain that takes on the same name, and it is also a villain in season 3 of American Horror Story, which that was the Coven season. Now what they do with this movie here with him is pretty scary, and I just love the flamboyant nature that he is given as well. But what I also found interesting with the zombie aspect is there really isn't handled in horror for the most part in this movie. There is one of the girls who is freaked out by the noises that Melissa makes in her sleep, 
and as a nightmare that she's attacked. Other than that though, I just saw the zombies as more of an allegory for slavery. They're brought back to work on this plantations and they do not get paid. The rich reap the benefits of this. It didn't click for me though until the last few minutes, but then I started to think back and it makes complete sense. I even like that Melissa's mother was fighting against the corrupt government, which makes even more sense of how the story for Clarvis correlates back to her. And this in turn earns her daughter's way into the school that we see that she's attending. The movie does state information about zombies in Haiti before the end credits. I'm not sure how accurate the what they're providing, but it does intrigue me if there are legit studies out there for this data. The only other thing about the story and deeper meaning wise I wanted to cover would be the correlating this school and its girls to what we're seeing in the past. They're all quite privileged. Listening to Fanny as an adult made me cringe, but I can't be too hard because the thoughts she's having are ones that I've had when I was younger. She believes that she loves Pablo and he breaks it off with her. This sends her into depression. She doesn't think she can live without him, but in the grand scheme of things, she'll be fine. Seeing what they're worrying about while watching Clarvis trying to survive with what happened to him was an intriguing duality. And I do have to admit, this movie is a tad bit boring though. It wasn't to the point where I hated it. It just took too long for the two stories to correlate to each other. And I found the story around Clarvis to be much more interesting until they collide with the present. And then I was on board. That scene that went horror though had me glued to the screen and really brought me back into the fold. And I thought the ending worked to what they were building towards. The acting in this movie I thought was fine. Labake, I thought really embodied the character she was playing. She's kind of annoying, but I think it fits for who she's supposed to be. Lauma, I thought was much stronger. She's an outsider and she doesn't necessarily care to make friends, but given the opportunity, she takes it. This is also the downfall by revealing aspects of her past to these girls. And I found it interesting through a conversation with who I'm assuming is her aunt. Bijoy, I thought was really good in his performance, especially as a voodoo zombie. Pierre Dahomey, though, stole this show for me, if I'm gonna be honest. His performance as Baron was creepy and just great. And I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed in building the story. Now, there were, weren't a lot in the way of effects, but it wasn't really that important to the movie. During the scene that made it horror for me, I thought it was great. Seeing the character and how she was acting was amazing. I also like what they did with her eyes as it made it even creepier, to be honest. The cinematography I thought was really good. It gave us a duality of how beautiful Haiti's countryside is to the horrors of what was happening there. On the flip side, we get to see how drab the school is in Paris with how important the teachers are making out what they're doing is. I also want to give props to the music selections. We do get some pop and rap music from France, which does help feel the realism for these young women. What I really have to give credit to would be the voodoo music that we're getting. It has that African vibe with the drums and just making you feel uneasy, which makes a lot of sense. Even more so that it helped ramp up the tension to the climax. Now with that said, I ended up really enjoying this movie. I like the duality of what happens in the past in Haiti with the social implications there and pairing that with what these girls in a proper Parisian school. Where the movie ends up getting me hooked though, I'll be honest, it did lose me for a good stretch as I was bored and it took too long to correlate. The little effects that we got were good and the cinematography helped as well as the soundtrack. The acting was really good also. With that said, this is an above average movie in my opinion and it's really worth viewing. I will warn you though, this is from France, so I had to watch it with subtitles on. If that is an issue, I would avoid this, but there's just some good social commentary in this movie, and I really like how everything ends up playing out. And my rating for this one is going to be a 7.5 out of 10. Okay, and for my next 
mini review here is going to be for Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2000. This is directed by Colin Buds. It was written by Peter M. Lankoff and is based on the novel by Robert Louis Stevenson. It stars Adam Baldwin and Steve Bastoni, as well as Anthony Brandon Wong. This is an action horror sci-fi thriller from Canada and Australia. It is currently sitting on a 4.6 on IMDb. And there's not enough ratings on Letterboxd to have an average, but it does look like it is kind of hovering probably around like the 2, 2.5 area, with the synopsis being the Hong Kong martial arts version of Jekyll and Hyde, where we have Hyde battling the triads, drug trafficking, and illegal organ transplants. Now, this is another movie that I've owned on DVD for probably roughly a decade. I picked it up when I was trying to obtain as many versions of the Stevenson novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, as I could. I really had no idea what was going to be, you know, the take that this one had on it, or if it, you know, was pretty basic or not. But the only thing I kind of really knew is that I have read the novel and have seen other versions, as you can tell if you've been following my episodes here. But I came into this one relatively blind. And the premise of this one is we start off with a drug deal, or we actually start off with a monk who is talking to a hooded figure before switching to an altercation between the triads and other gangsters. Now it ends up with one of the leaders being killed, and then we shift over to the United States where we have Dr. Jekyll portrayed by Baldwin as he's performing his last surgery at a hospital and he's being given grief by his fellow doctors. His plan is to go into plastic surgery to make more money, and we get to see him at his wedding, which is the first thing that happens where he marries Mary Riley, which I do think is a pretty interesting nod, and I didn't realize it until I was writing my review for it as that is paying homage to the film with Julia Roberts that follows the same story. And Mary Riley in this one is portrayed by Helena Joy. And they go to Hong Kong for their honeymoon. And it is there that they meet a Mr. Wong, who is played by Seng Chan. Now he's a tour guide on a boat that goes around the harbor. And he also reveals that he's a doctor of Chinese medicine. Now there's some budding heads where Dr. Jekyll doesn't trust it. So he prevents his wife from taking the herb that is being offered to her when she has a headache. But then she goes back to the hotel room to kind of take a bath and kind of relax while he goes to the local hospital. And this is where everything changes as a shootout happens where a bunch of triad members come into the hospital and he is forced to try to save somebody before they pass away. But when they do and Dr. Jekyll tries to flee, he is kidnapped along with his wife. And then it ends up becoming where he ends up in the care of Mr. Wong, who is helping him recover from some burns as his wife had to end up passing away in an explosion. And while he's learning about some of these herbs, he realizes that if he mixes this right combination, he can become Mr. Hyde and tries to go about getting his revenge. Now, if you know me, I give credit to movies that try to do something different. This one does that and I can appreciate some aspects for sure. The big thing that I dug was the fact that they have a doctor, Jekyll, who is trained in Western medicine. He experiments with some of these herbs that give him superhuman strength and whatnot. And I thought this was a pretty cool twist of the story that's been done over and over again. It is slightly problematic as it isn't all that feasible, but I'll digress there. And I do like to see that we actually have Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are actually our heroes of this movie as, you know, he's just trying to get revenge for what happened to his wife and not necessarily somebody who's just experimenting with these and going off and committing crimes. Now, going from that, though, the synopsis is a bit misleading about this being the martial arts version. I like that they took it to another country, and that gives it another twist. The problem, though, is that the training montage of Dr. Jekyll and then what we see of Mr. Hyde, where he only gets in a fight once, really, where it comes into play. 
in general, this movie has a runtime of 105 minutes, and I'd be surprised if more than 15 of that was, you know, martial arts, and that is really pushing it. I will say, this has an interesting little aspect where we almost have Jigsaw-like kills. Now, this comes out before the original Saw movie, but he does get back at some of these people in ways where they did something to him or they had an item that he remembers and then uses against them later. And then there's another problem that this movie just runs too long. I'm not going to lie, but I found this to not be all that interesting. I think there's some good things in play, but it just doesn't work as well as they want. We have a few different storylines that don't really go anywhere, and it seems like they're trying to do too much since they didn't fully flesh it out. I think they should have just stuck with Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and the Triad Angle instead of, you know, also involving this weird storyline of a Chicago cop that's also there trying to get to the bottom of this organ harvesting transplant thing. The ending is also a bit meh, and it's almost superhero-ish angle, just doesn't work for me. Now moving this to the acting, I just think Baldwin was miscast to be honest. I think they have him here as name recognition, but I just don't buy him as the doctor. This seems like a movie where they should have had someone smaller for Dr. Jekyll and then use Baldwin as Mr. Hyde. He does physically fit that aspect of the character and then for the revenge aspects as well. Now, Bastoni plays McAfee and I just don't understand why this character is in the movie. This goes under one of the storylines that doesn't add much for me, but I did think that Wong was really good in his role as the other cop which kind of makes sense because they're in Hong Kong. So he should be somebody who is investigating some of this. And his character name is Barry Tong. And I also like the same things with Chang, who is the wise old teacher. And it was interesting to see Kira Clavel, if I've seen her in other things. And we do get to see Joy Nude. So if that's something you'd be interested in checking out, just so you know, that's in this movie. The effects weren't great either. We're in this weird phase of CGI that was being used more. And this is a TV movie, so they didn't have the largest budget to work with. There's this weird effect when Mr. Hyde is there, and it didn't make sense at first. It does in the end, and I end up despising it, partly because it doesn't look good, and the other is that it's just too ham-fisted in what they're trying to establish. I thought the rest of the effects, though, I could remember were fine, including the blood. And I know there was some eyes that look fake, but I did like what they were trying to get at. When they have Mr. Hyde's though, as it has this weird color pigmentation to it while he is Mr. Hyde. Uh, the cinematography was fine aside from that. I do have to give the movie credit for its soundtrack. They have selections that really fit that, that we're in Hong Kong and they're really traditional and just gave it that Eastern vibe for sure. Not a score I would listen to regularly, but I had no problems with how it fit into this movie. And then now with that said, this isn't very good. I was disappointed as I think that there were some aspects that they could have used to set this one apart, but they decided to do too much and it just bogged itself down. I like moving this to a new location and what the changes they did with Dr. Jekyll is another. The problem though is that they bogged the story down as I said with too much that doesn't add anything and I was bored. I didn't buy Baldwin as Dr. Jekyll and I'm not really sure why Bastoni was in the movie, but the rest of the cast fit for what was needed. There are some bad effects, but there are also some that are fine along with the cinematography. The soundtrack fit for what was needed. I can't recommend this one to you though, as my rating here is a below average for sure, as this is a 4 out of 10 for me. And that'll take me next to Eyes Without a Face from 1960. This was directed by George Franju. This is from a novel from Jean Rendon, and it was adapted together with Pierre Beaujeu, Thomas Nurjek. Jean Rendon also helped with the adaptation along with Claude Setet. And 
The, some of the dialogue help was done by Pierre Gascar. This stars Pierre Bessir, Alida Valli, and Juliette Maniel. This is a drama horror film that is a co-production from France and Italy. It is currently sitting on a 7.7 on IMDb and a 3.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a surgeon causes an accident which leaves his daughter disfigured and goes to extremes to give her a new face. Now this is one that I was slightly embarrassed about in that I hadn't seen it but I knew about it, but I'm not really sure when I first heard about this movie. It's just one of those things that I knew that existed, I just hadn't gotten around to see it yet. I did luck out that this was being shown at the Gateway Film Center as part of the Fright Club podcast movie club that they do monthly. It's a really intriguing film, especially for the year that it came out for sure. Now to kind of just give a little bit more background information for this one, we have a woman in a car while it's raining out as her name is Louise and she's played by Vali. In the back seat is a woman in a trench coat as well as a hat and she's kind of slumped down. Now we end up learning that this passenger is dead and being dumped into the river. Then when the body is found, Dr. Gessenier, prayed by Basur, along with another man are called to check to see if it is their missing daughter. As there's two missing women, so they call both of the parents to try to see if they can figure out if this is the, which one this person belongs to. But then when he, the doctor, ends up claiming that it is his daughter to go about the necessary arrangements there. He returns to his villa where we see that Luis and him know each other. And then it also turns out that his daughter is actually still alive as her name is Cristane. She's portrayed by Edith Scope. Now she was in a horrible car accident that Dr. Gressonier was driving. He is a renowned scientist, and we've seen the beginning that he was at a conference where they're talking about new method of doing skin grafts that won't leave as many scars, possibly. And so he is trying to focus on giving his daughter a new face, as she's currently wearing this eerie white mask to hide her scars. And this is what they're trying to do right now is find somebody who has a similar look to his daughter so they can try to help her despite what it does to other people. I didn't want to go too depth on my recap. Because this doesn't have the deepest and most complex story when it comes to subplots. I don't think that hurts the movie, though, as I feel this is more of a character study with kind of the things happening in the background. And I'm also glad that I got, finally got to run to seeing this as well, if you couldn't tell. Now, what I find interesting here is that Dr. Gressonier is a leader in science for his field. I wonder if the research that he's doing that kind of gets established in the beginning, if he was performing this before what happened to his daughter or if he kind of took this on afterwards now this would be a similar thing though if he does take it on afterwards to like dr frankenstein as in some adaptations it's him trying to conquer death due to his mother passing away since he feels guilty to what happened as for this movie that he was responsible for the car accident that happened now part of this mystery in the movie comes to the fact that cristane is being kept in a hospital but then escapes now this is clearly so the doctor can bring her to the home but she becomes a prisoner and it's also intriguing that we have this kennel of dogs that she's able to befriend on the premises. It is very similar to being that she's in a prison of sorts and hiding from the world due to what happened to her face. Now, she does gain a bit of confidence in the movie, but it is short-lived. And I will say she does a great job as while wearing the creepy mask that she has. She can't really talk and she does so well with body language and just being able to see her eyes. The last character I really wanted to delve into was that of Louise. Her face looked familiar to me and it wasn't until about halfway through this movie that it clicked. Over 15 years later, she would appear in one of my favorite movies of all time, 
in Dario Argento's Suspiria. She is interesting and we semi-learn part of her backstory from the funeral. The police are there and it is pointed out that she's the assistant to Dr. Gressonier. We learn that there's a bit more to the things that are going on though. As for the pacing, I'm glad they didn't delve too much into the sciences movies. I think that could have bogged this down. I will admit though, I did this find it to be a bit slow. We get some interesting and complex characters from these three with a solid surrounding cast. I just didn't love this as much as I was hoping to. And I think the ending is quite powerful for what they were going to for. That'll take me to the effects here, which it is shot in black and white, so it really helps some things. We get a pretty horrific scene for the time period where a woman's face is being removed. That looked really good, to be honest. Another scene that stood out was what happens at the end. It didn't look great, as it definitely is very reminiscent of like Night of the Living Dead. But I'll take this practical look any day. We also get a glimpse of Christine's... Cristane's scars and they look pretty solid and I do like how it's shown a little bit hazy though so you don't get the greatest look and I think that's much more effective for our imagination. And I've already covered that the look of her mask was great and the cinematography was well done. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack. I didn't realize it until the trailer was being shown before the movie as the podcast was recording and one of the hosts was showing it pointed out that this is a song that I believe was from Pee Wee's Big Adventure. I'll never be able to watch that movie the same knowing that but this song is use quite a bit but it has an odd fit for what we're seeing on the screen it just works because it almost has like calope which feels more very circus like and gives a weird feel for what we're seeing here and it's just eerie feeling for sure and i honestly think it'll be one that i'll add to my playlist of writing music now with that said this is a classic and i'm glad that i can tick it off my list it really doesn't have the most complex story, but we get interesting angles with this mad scientist concept. I think that the three stars do well in creating flawed yet strong characters. The effects were really good, as was the soundtrack. If I did have any issues, it would be I think that it's a bit slow, but not to the point where I hated it. And I would rate this as a good movie, and one that I really want to revisit as well. I will warn you, this film is from France, so it's in French, and I had to watch it with subtitles on. I'm not sure if there's a dub version out there. But if that's an issue, keep that in mind before coming in to see this. But my rating here would be an 8 out of 10. Okay, and next I have Cloverfield from 2008. This is directed by Matt Reeves. It was written by Drew Goddard. It stars Mike Vogel, Jessica Lucas, and Lizzie Kaplan. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.3 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a group of friends venture deep into the streets of New York on a rescue mission during a rampaging monster attack. Now this film, I was intrigued when I first heard about it, as I was a big fan of the kaiju giant monster movies. My first viewing of this was right after college. I enjoyed it, but that was about the only time I had seen it. Now I've seen it once last year while I was working through a horror movie list and this was in the seas where I'm currently at on that and then I ended up introducing it the other day to my girlfriend to gauge how she would react to found footage movies which I can gladly say she did enjoy this one so I think I'm gonna kind of go into some of the other ones now now I kind of just give you a little bit of background a little bit more of that from the synopsis is that we first learned that this is found footage from an area known as Clover Field and it's from military the or the government has this level as classified but it was formerly known as central park and then the footage starts itself with a guy who's looking out of an apartment looking over central park and he goes to the bedroom where we see beth mcintyre who is odette annabelle and the man is rob hawkins who is michael stall david 
Now, she's never been to Coney Island, so that's the plan that they're going to have for the day. And then the footage shifts over to Lily Ford, who is Jessica Lucas, as she is with her boyfriend as they're getting things ready for a party that night. Now, her boyfriend is Jason, who is Vogel, as well as that's Rob's brother. Now, Rob is leaving for Japan for a new job, so they're having a going away party. And they don't realize it, but they didn't switch out the tape, so they're filming over this great day that Rob and Beth spent together. Now, back at Rob's apartment, we meet Hudson Hud Platt, who is TJ Miller, and he's convinced to film the party as well as do kind of testimonial goodbyes to Rob from the people that are, you know, attending. Now, things take a turn as they do a surprise for Rob as Beth ends up showing to, up to the party with a new guy and then it makes him mad. Now, HUD is trying to figure out what is going on between his best friend and Beth, while he's also trying to get the attention of Marlena Diamond, who is Kaplan. Now, things take a turn when an earthquake hits. They go out to see what happens as the news states that there was a barge in the nearby bay that was overturned, and that's when they realize a giant monster is attacking, and it actually destroys and rips the head off of the Statue of Liberty, and they hit the streets, but while they're trying to escape, Rob gets a call that Beth is trapped in her apartment and he decides to go save her and his friends join him. And then we get to see the horrors and everything going on as they try to get back to her. Now, as I've said already, the first time that I saw this, I liked it. And then after my previous rewatches, there are a lot of things that I didn't remember. The first thing that struck me is the emotion of this film. It starts off with some really good drama. And I love the editing of the happy day that Rob and Beth had together with the reality of where they are today. Building that emotion in the beginning makes sense as to why he's risking his life for her, especially because he know he's messed everything up. And to be honest, this is something that I've thought about on a regular basis. If this happened to me, what I would do. And I'm a really big fan of that aspect. The next thing was that for whatever reason, I didn't think they showed the monster as much as they did. And I was wrong in that assumption. We get to see it quite a bit, making this a found footage is an interesting angle, since we get to see it from the perspective of what it would be like trying to survive an event like this. The group is doing some pretty stupid things, but if you don't know, we don't get to see all the things that are happening. And when you're in a panic, you would tend to kind of make more wrong decisions than what you would normally do. As there are some pretty interesting set pieces as well. There's a section where the surviving members of the group have a run-in with the military. I love what happens to Marlena during this stretch, as I found it to be interesting to kind of give a little bit more of filling in this monster. Now, everything all happens in one night, so you don't have all the answers yet, which I think is good. And it's interesting to see how this plays out. And I did have a slight issue, though, that the military lets them go. Not sure if they would actually do that, but the only thing would be that the humanity of a military officer would cause him to break protocol. He probably wouldn't be found out, so there's that to make that decision. And now, I have to address the issue of the found footage aspect. I believe that HUD would keep the camera and continue to film. It is even more prevalent in today's society that we film things around us instead of necessarily doing the right thing. This isn't a major event, and this would change the course of history, so you really do want to document it. There are just times that I'm like, wouldn't you just put the camera down here because it'd be easier to do things? So it does make some things implausible that you would risk yourself just to keep filming. I don't necessarily think it hurts, but it's just an issue with the subgenre in general. As for the pacing, I think it's great. This film doesn't waste any time, and the introduction to the characters is good, and it doesn't take too long. We get to know them pretty quickly, which I think is good. We continue to learn more about each one as they're trying to survive this event, and I do dig that aspect. Rob becomes the catalyst for what they're doing, and I thought that it was interesting with how it presents his issue. 
and how he actually grows from it. Thought the ending was good and this bringing us to how the footage was found. I dug the making it confidential and that the government has confiscated it. I thought the acting was really good. It is crazy to see quite a few of these actors have gone on to do much bigger things and this film really shows their potential. Kaplan is solid as the outsider. She does bring some sarcasm. I thought that was good for the role. Lucas is interesting and her frustration was fitting. She's just a good friend throughout. Miller brings some humor. His character isn't that much different from what you see in his, like from Deadpool. And I love his nervous tick is just to talk, especially about inappropriate things at the bad times. Stall David is good. He is kind of the hero and I thought his growth was solid. I just love that he's scared to fail and I can completely understand that as it's something that I kind of deal with on a regular basis. But he needs to overcome this though. Vogel is just as solid as his brother. Annabelle is gorgeous and it's just a shame that she wasn't in this film more. I'm also a big fan of her and it does well in making you care about these characters so when some of them die you feel something. And I thought the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. The effects I thought were solid. To bring the monster to life you have to go CGI but I thought it looked great. The monster looks real and the things that they have it doing are as well. There are moments where it doesn't hold up but there's very little of that for me. As I said earlier. I was quite surprised to see how much they show the monster, but also how quickly or it being shown from a distance really helps. The setting is also great to make New York look empty as for everyone you know is trying to flee. There is an underrated aspect of this film as well. The cinematography is well done for being found footage and it does make you feel like you're really there. The score is something that can be tricky in a movie like this. The only music I can remember was at the party and it felt like you were really there. And then the rest of the sound design was good as it makes it feel as real as possible because everything is ambient. You get the sounds of the monster and the army fighting back and just buildings falling apart. So that really all helps to build that realism. Now that said, I definitely glad that I've given this a couple of rewatches. I knew that I liked it the first time and I can confirm that this is a really good film for me. As a fan of giant monster films, this one feels real. Going with the found footage angle did add a little bonus for me of how you feel things are happening in the realism. I thought the acting, effects, sound design were all good. The low running time and editing really helps to build the tension and keep that going to a satisfying conclusion. I even like the beginning of being somewhat of a drama helps us to like the characters and get to know them. So you care about what happens later. If you don't like found footage, I would avoid this. If that's not the case, I think this is a really good one especially if you like giant monster movies. I'd recommend giving this one a viewing, and it really does hold up with multiple viewings in my opinion. I came in here with an 8.5 out of 10. And for the final movie that I watched this week, it is Hold That Ghost from 1941. This is directed by Arthur Lubin. It is written by Robert Lees, Frederick I. Ronaldo, and John Grant, with the original story by Robert Lees and Frederick I. Ronaldo. This stars... Bud Abbott, Luke Costello, and Richard Carlson. This is an adventure, comedy, horror, music, mystery thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.5 on IMDb and a 3.5 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being after inheriting a fortune from a gangster, two dim-witted service station attendants find themselves stranded in a haunted house. Now, this is a movie that I really didn't know existed. I've seen most of the Abbott and Costello crossover horror movies to my knowledge, now the Gateway Film Center is doing something for the month of March where they're featuring these duos, comedies, films. Saturday morning had a showing so I decided to give it a go. And then to kind of just give a little bit more information is that we start out in a fancy restaurant. They're understaffed so a staffing agency has sent over Chuck Murray who is Abbott and Ferdinand Jones Costello who Ferdinand goes by Ferdy. 
They of course are bumbling and making the manager upset. The more important part here is that we have a Charlie Smith who is Mark Lawrence as he's attempting to blackmail Moose Matson, who is William B. Davidson about some money that he's illegally moving. Now Chuck and Ferdy are fired by the end of the night. The next day they go back to their job at a service station where Moose shows up. Ferdy accidentally draws the attention of the police and the trio end up in a high-speed car chase. Moose is shot while Ferdy is driving and he pulls out his last will and testament as it turns out according to the document since chuck and ferdy were there at the time of his death they inherit his money and the hotel that is out of town now the problem here is that nobody really knows where the money is and he keeps making a statement that he keeps it in his head and then charlie ends up setting up the way that they're going to get out to this place and so the next day they show up for their ride, but also coming along with them is a Camila Brewster, who is Joan Davis. She's a radio voice actress. There's Dr. Jackson, who is Richard Carlson, as he's a bit oblivious, but he is quite smart. And then there's Norma Lind, who is Evelyn Ankers. Now, Charlie also joins us, but they're stranded at the place as their ride takes off with their fare as well as their luggage. The place is kind of scary and through some bumbling antics, there are secret rooms that are found, as well as a casino upstairs. Now, Charlie is killed by some hands that appear from a secret compartment, as well as two cops show up later in the night. Now, the problem ends up being if they're going to try to find the money that he hid and survive the nefarious individuals that are after it as well. Now, as I've previously said, I've seen a few Abbott and Costello films, so I had an idea of what I was getting into. I'm not the biggest comedy horror fan, which this movie is, but I do have a soft spot for this duo. I think they work well off of each other, with Abbott being, you know, slightly more intelligent, while Costello is definitely the one that carries more of the comedy. Now, what I have an issue with this movie is the title is misleading. We don't hear the word ghost until about an hour into the movie. Now, the horror comes from how creepy the place that they're in, and that there's a killer that is hiding inside of it. If this comes as a spoiler for something that came out 80 years ago, I do apologize, but I feel that you should know. Now, I didn't care for this one as much as I do some of the others, if I'm going to be honest. I will admit that I did laugh quite a few times, but I really prefer their pun jokes over the slapstick comedy. Now, there's some investigation into the mystery of this place, but I like that these people aren't there for the money, as they really don't know about it until things go on. Now, the dynamic of the group is good to an extent. I don't really know why Norma is in this movie, though, outside of needing a love interest for Dr. Jackson. I do like how Camila and Ferdy play off of each other as it does come off well. But I hate to say this, I found this one to be slightly boring. I know coming in that, you know, this is a comedy. It still hurts the pacing because it doesn't really help building tension. And I get this movie isn't that type, but it really just kind of plays through a bunch of gags which don't necessarily work for me. I do like how this ends up, and it is really coming full circle to things that are said in the beginning. The happy ending here works, and I really want to see, you know, this duo have good things for what they put up with. Now, something I will give credit is to the acting. I just really love how the duo of Abbott and Costello play off each other. I also think that Davis does well in her role. She adds a different dynamic, and I thought it does play well. It is an interesting to see how smart Carlson is with how dumb he is with social norms, as Norma is pretty much throwing herself at him. And again, I will say that the rest of the cast does fine in the support, but I just don't think Anchors is really needed here. Being that this movie is from the 40s, there's not really a lot in the way of effects. It just doesn't need them, really. The hidden compartments of the house are cool, and I like that the setting is spooky, but the hidden prohibition bar and the casino upstairs is something I found to be intriguing where different levers have to be figured out for them to appear. Having the hidden person who's attacking them and with the different places that they're coming from works. And the cinematography is fine, it just doesn't really add a whole lot here. 
The last thing to cover would be the music. I think that it fits for the era, even though I don't really care for it. What I didn't like was that the music numbers we get here, there's Ted Lewis as with his orchestra, who plays himself in the movie, as well as the Andrew sisters who play themselves. It makes sense if, when this was released for people that enjoy this type of music, to see them you know, being played on the big screen. I just thought the musical numbers just bogged this down and it didn't hold my interest, so I was definitely bored at those moments. Now, with that said, I still thought this movie was fun. It isn't my favorite from the ones I've seen from this duo, but it did hold my interest. The title is misleading and I think there are some parts that just don't necessarily work. I did think that the main duo is great and that Camille fits in with them well. There's not a lot in the way of effects, but they don't really need them. The music fits for the era and I'll just say I didn't care for the musical numbers. It is slightly boring though, and I would just have to say that I would rate this just above average for me, and I came in with a 6.5 out of 10. And what I'm gonna go ahead and do is send you over to the trailer of my first featured review. Okay, and for my first featured review for this episode is going to be The Golem from 1920. This is co-directed between Carl Bozzi and Paul Wegener, and he also 
co-wrote this with Heinrich Galeen, as well as he starred in this with Albert Steinruck and Ernst Deutsch. Now, this is a fantasy horror film from Germany. It is currently sitting on a 7.2 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being in the 16th century Prague, a rabbi creates the golem, a giant creature made of clay. Using sorcery, he brings his creature to life in order to protect the Jews of Prague from persecution. Now, this is a movie that I first heard about when I was a freshman in college. My intro to world cinema class had required reading, and this was featured in an early chapter along with The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu. I'd always wanted to check this out, but it took a while, and it was due to my podcast that I finally did, as this is the third entry into the Centennial Club. We start this movie off with Rabbi Lowell, who is Steinruch. As he's checking the stars, there's an interesting grouping of them that reads that there will be calamity that will come down on his people. He realizes that he has to do something to prevent this and goes about creating a golem. This is a creature that is made from clay and will do whatever it is ordered. He gets the aid of his assistant, who is Famulus, who is Deutsch. They then receive bad news from Emperor Luhois, who is portrayed by Otto Gruber. He is forcing them to leave their ghetto in one month, or he says the turning of the moon, I believe, in part due to their ability to do black magic. The news is delivered to the Jews through Knight Florian, who is Dore Potzold, who becomes enamored with Rabbi Lowell's daughter Miriam, portrayed by Lida Salmanova. Rabbi Lowell then sends a reply back, begging for an audience as he did do some what i'm assuming is kind of like astrology and did some almost parlor magic tricks and the emperor then grants this wish to allow him to plead their case now rabbi lol then performs a black magic spell that grants him the word that is needed to bring the golem to life the creature is then commanded to do different tasks for rabbi lol they soon realize though the monster is a bit unruly but rabbi lol elects to bring it with him to his audience with the Emperor. The question then becomes, will it be enough to change the Emperor's mind, or is the ruin in the stars foretold have something to do with what Rabbi Lowell created? Now I will say, I found this to be an intriguing little film. I do have to admit that it's a bit racist from my point of view today with the Jewish people and their faith. Being that this is made in Germany kind of explains that, especially with how Adolf Hitler rose to power soon after, and the propaganda that was used against the Jews is aiding in that in this movie now where i want to start this though is that i like the movie is using what seems to be legitimate jewish religion and history from the information that i can find this is lore from their culture what i did find interesting is that i recently just watched to the devil a daughter before seeing this as both movies share the name of the same demon astaroth i find this interesting that the jews in prague are being cast out for practicing black magic and the fears are legitimately founded as that is exactly what Rabbi Lowell does to bring this creature to life. The problem I have though is that in just 13 years after the movie, Hitler rose to power. It is hard to say that this movie is predicting it because I can't assume that, but I can imagine after World War I, the sentiment to partially blame them was probably already there, and that is really how Hitler rose is that he used them as part of his stepping stone to blame them for all of Germany's problems after the war. It is also casting them as villainous in this movie for what they're doing. What I really did like, though, were the characters here. I almost see a bit of self-fulfilling prophecy in this movie. Rabbi Lowell believes that he has read in the stars that something bad is going to happen to his people. Then they're told they have to leave their ghetto. The events that play out in the city, though, could almost be the ruin that he is foretelling. So if he doesn't create this creature, maybe it doesn't happen. 
So that's kind of where I sit with some of this as being a possible explanation. But that also moves me next, though, is that they do get to kind of keep their land by some of the things that play out while the golem is in the emperor's palace. So it becomes kind of twofold that using the black magic to create this does help them keep their land. But then what ends up happening with the golem also kind of becomes the ruin that they're predicting. And I will have to say, Wagner does a really good job as the golem here. He has some pretty imposing size for the era, and I like the makeup that they use to make his face look like clay. Now this is black and white, of course, but with the restoration I saw, it looked amazing. Steinrook is solid as well. I've covered what he has done previously, and I think that he really drives this movie as the rabbi that is trying to save his people, while possibly misreading the stars. Salamanova as Miriam was interesting. She is secretly seeing Florian, who brought the bad news to the town. I think this is forbidden as he's not of her faith, as this does take place in the 16th century, and she needs to marry somebody of her faith, especially being a rabbi's daughter. Looking at it from my point of view in, you know, modern times, it does fall a bit into misogyny, as, you know, my personal belief is she can see whoever she wants to. Deutsch really plays along with this and what he does, and he creates problems as he has a misogynistic look on the decision she's making. I thought the rest of the cast was fine and rounded this out for what was needed. Even though I thought the story here has some interesting aspect to it, I do have to say I love learning more about the lore from the religious side. I did find it to be a bit boring though as well. It is interesting though that the version I saw only ran 76 minutes. At some point, I do want to see if I can pick up a copy of the 101 minute length just to see what I could have missed. I like seeing the buildup though. And after that, I did lose my interest with how things played out. I did like what is done with the creature, though, in the end, for sure. The effects, I thought, were really good and shocked me with how good they were, to be honest. The look of the monster I've already touched on, but there's a scene where a ritual is being performed and the face of Astaroth appears. On top of that, there's another cool scene at the Emperor's Palace as well. We get the changing of filters to signify day, night, and being inside, so props to the cinematography there. The interesting scene that I was referring to, though, with the palace is we get to see Lowell actually making images from the past appear. For being early cinema, I thought what they did here was pretty amazing. The last thing to cover would be the soundtrack, which I really liked in this version. It really has a classic score, but it fit for what was needed. I even liked that there were some good effects that matched what was going on in the screen, and it really does build the feel of what was going on, which is good when you're dealing with a silent film and can't hear the actors. Again, and I'll keep reminding everybody with this, I don't know if this soundtrack that is playing with it is what actually should go with it, but I thought what they did paired very well and something else i haven't really alluded to here as well is that this film is another one that falls into the german expressionism movement this one doesn't really work as well for me as the cabinet of dr caligari did just because that one really had more matte finishes in the background and everything the guard tower i know for one of them is something that doesn't necessarily look realistic the city gates are where you really kind of see this. The gate itself is very large to the people that are quite small in comparison. We don't get as much of that here, but this still does kind of fall into that as not everything is necessarily uniform, but it is a little bit more than you'd get in, you know, Caligari. Now, with that said, though, I'm really glad that I finally got around to seeing this movie. It has legit been on my list of movies to check out for probably 15 years. I like the mythology that we get with the Jewish faith, but I do slightly find it problematic with the portrayal as it's almost seeing it as evil. thought the acting was fine and the effects were good, especially for the time period. 
The look of the creature I also enjoyed, and the soundtrack that was coupled with this version worked. If I did have a problem, I thought it gets a little bit boring after the build-up, but I still enjoyed it regardless. I would rate this as being really good overall. I do want to seek out the longer version I said earlier, though, and to see how that affects my thoughts for sure. I will warn you, this is originally from Germany, as it was a silent film. There are title cards. I do know on Amazon Prime there is a talking version that felt a bit odd as I started to watch it, and... Might be something I will eventually give it a go, but I watched the more traditional one for my first viewing. But my rating here is going to be an 8.5 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do now is send you over to the trailer of my second featured review. I've read your file. I'd like to hear you tell your own story. I don't need another therapist. I need to leave. I was eight months pregnant. What happened? My baby was taken. Sybil? early childhood trauma, extensive history of mental illness, and psychotic delusions. I know you gotta be sick of being held against your will. Not for long. Okay, and for my second featured review of this week is going to be The Dark Red from 2018. This is written and directed by Dan Bush, and it was also co-written by Conel Byrne. This stars April Billingsley, Kelsey Scott, and Conel Byrne. This is a mystery thriller from the United States that is currently sitting on a 4.8 on IMDb and a 3.0 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, a young woman is committed to a psychiatric hospital and claims her newborn was stolen by a secret society. Now, I had to kind of alter that synopsis a little bit from IMDb because I feel like it's kind of spoiler heavy for the one that they have listed. But this was another independent feature that I was intrigued by when I saw it was showing at the Gateway Film Center. Now, if you know me, I don't normally watch trailers, but when I go with my girlfriend, I don't want to be rude, so I watched this one. And that's where it kind of intrigued me, so I decided to give it a viewing when I had some time on a Sunday. We start this with Katherine Warren, who is Jill Jane Clements. She's an agent that works with the Department of Children's Services in what I believe is Oregon. She's going to check on a family that lives in a camper off the road. Inside, she finds the mother is dead and a young Sybil Warren, who is portrayed by Clementine June Segstack, is inside of a chest. The girl is then taken into custody where she is adopted by Catherine. 
and is helped by Dr. Morales, who is Bernard Centaro Clark. We then shift into the present. This little girl has grown up to be April Billingsley. Sybil is in a mental institution as being interviewed by Dr. Deluche, who is portrayed by Kelsey Scott. Sybil believes that her baby was taken and that she needs to get out of this hospital immediately. Now, Dr. Deluche asks her to tell her what happened before she can do that. Now, Sybil tells her that it is all in the file, but the doc tells her that she needs to convince her. And so that's how she tells us the story. And we get to see everything as it's playing out. And I also think there's some interesting things that we get here in this portion of it as when Sybil is telling things, Dr. Deluche is writing it down, but Sybil actually calls her out on the exact things. So we get to see that she has been institutionalized, maybe not so much in this way, but she has been going to you know, therapy and has been getting treatment. So she knows some of the clinical diagnoses that have been happening. So I found that to be an interesting angle that we get in this movie. And what she's referring to is that Sybil was at Catherine's funeral and she meets a David Hollyfield, who is Byrne. They go out for a drink and end up going back to her place. The two of them end up falling in love and after that first encounter that they have, she ends up being pregnant. She is insistent to meet his family as they end up becoming engaged and she feels that if they're gonna have a child together and you know, spend the rest of their life, she needs to you know, meet his family, but he's resistant. She ends up going behind his back though to make this happen and they end up planning a trip together. Now his parents are Rose, who is Rhonda Griffiths, and William, who is John Curran. Things take a turn during this visit that ends up with Sybil in this mental hospital. And she has a history, as I've said, with mental illness. So we don't know if what she's telling us is true or not, but she also claims that she can read minds. Question ends up becoming with this movie, did Sybil have a baby that was taken or is she crazy and living a delusional life? Now, I tried to give what this movie's about here without spoiling too much, but the first thing that I wanted to cover is that I think this has an interesting premise. I like how the movie establishes that Sybil is an unreliable narrator. We're seeing her in the hospital that she's been committed. There's this cool image of a bird in a cage that is also in the room where she's being interviewed. I like that the movie is establishing what she thinks happened to bring her here and then showing us through the sessions between Dr. Deluch and, you know, kind of going from that bird thing is... It's definitely an allegory correlation here that, you know, they're both locked up and want to be free. Now, Dr. Deluch does tell us the logical explanation of all of this that could be actually happening here. It is good that we're given this, as well as some brief images to couple with it, of her version of what she thinks the truth is. And I think that works for me as well. Where the movie loses me, though, is what happens to get us to the climax. I like the ideas that we're using as to why all this is happening, but how it plays out was just a bit meh for me and just kind of mediocre. What makes this odd, though, is that there's a supernatural element to this that I don't really think plays much into the movie as it's trying to, you know, get at. It really is the crux behind everything, but we're convinced for a stretch that it isn't real. Going from that, though, it is pointing to what is driving Sybil to continue down this path, I don't necessarily know if that is needed, to be honest, and I think I'm going to have a little bit of a spoiler section at the end to kind of work through some of that and see if, you know, it makes a little bit more sense as I kind of talk it out. I also feel that I liked how this movie showed us everything that Sybil was saying. It is also kind of boring, though. It really feels like nothing is happening, and to be honest, her story is really slow. She is talking to Dr. Deluch, and we get to see her, you know, getting her chance at happiness that is just completely destroyed. Since I don't like where she ends up 
doing, it doesn't hold up for me, unfortunately. But I do have to give credit, though, as to the acting. I think that Billingsley tiptoes that interesting line of the things she's telling us being real, or does she just believe them and they're not actually happening? There are times where I'm with her, and then we get some things where I think maybe it's all in her head. This is a solid performance to be able to do that. I think that Kelsey Scott, I also like as she's trying to help her, but she's also just not giving into the things that she's being told. Byrne does get some really interesting things with his facial expressions in this movie. And I do get a bit of a vibe of a get out here. Now this could be considered a spoiler, I guess. But if you see this and how it plays out, you know why. And it isn't completely the same, so I will say that. It just has a very similar feel as the reason I, I think they correlate to each other. I thought Griffiths and Curran are both solid as well. They're both well-to-do, and they just fit the characters they're trying to portray. And then the rest of the cast worked out for what was needed. Now, there's not a lot of a way of effects, but the blood we got looked real, and that was pretty good. It has good color, and we get to see a few different scenes where it made me cringe a bit with what they're showing. I also distort the images that we're seeing to signify that it might not be really happening that way. And it is established early in this movie that the memories are just recreations by our brain, so I think that's kind of an interesting thing to introduce and then proceed to go into what is Sybil's beliefs. And that also includes that the cinematography here was well done. Now, with that said, I thought this movie did some good things and had some interesting concepts, but I just really didn't think it worked out as well as it wanted to. I think that the interviews, which allow us to see things happening, just didn't play in the way to keep my interest. The acting I thought was good across the board. thought the effects were as well with the soundtrack fitting for what was needed. I also think that just some of the ideas are lost and the events leading up to the climax didn't really work for me. I would say, though, this is slightly over average for me, and I came in with a 6 out of 10 for this movie. But I will say, I'm going to go ahead and cut over to a spoiler section. That will be in the time code if you want to skip over that to, you know, kind of close out the show as this is the second review. But I'm going to start the spoilers now. Now, this movie did have some production problems. As I said, this was made in 2018, but it didn't get released here until 2020, which is why it's the second half of this featured review here. And it's kind of interesting is that the director, Dan Bush, <laughs> had two children and has a second feature film that's being made during you know the making of this movie before it got released but what i really wanted to talk about here is the spoiler part of this is that she's able to read minds and that she you know supernatural well it turns out that david is in on this and that's the reason why the two of them end up falling for each other is that his family's foundation is what was you know funding some of her education and everything so what ends up happening there is that she has been targeted because of these abilities. He never revealed it to her, but he also has the same abilities, and they're trying to harvest these pure babies that have two parents that have the same abilities so that their blood is much stronger is, you know, kind of the whole thing there, which, not a horrible idea, I just think this gets lost in some of the things they're doing and doesn't necessarily play out as well as they're going for. And I mean, it does get pretty brutal near the end. What I didn't like, though, is leading up to the climax is she's literally having like a training montage like this is, you know, Rocky or any of the action movies from back in the day. It just didn't necessarily fit for me. and I just don't know. It's one of those issues where there's just too many things going on of genre wise that just don't necessarily go together. And I just I think if they would have been better suited to kind of focus more on the supernatural aspect a bit more 
as I've been saying, instead of kind of correlating it back to what they're doing. And there's also a little bit where I think it's almost like a convenient plot device to have her be psychic because she feels that she's connected to her child and that's why she can't give up. Despite all of these, you know, mental institution type things telling her to that she lost her baby and that it was stillborn and all of these type of things. I do think it's kind of a cool thing to correlate back there like Prevenge where that lady, you know, while she's pregnant thinks her baby is talking to her. But, you know, that's a whole other story there. But that's really just all I wanted to talk about here in the spoiler section. What I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show.
Okay. I want to thank you all for coming on this journey with me as to close out here for episode number 19 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. If you want to read any of the written reviews for anything on this episode or any of my previous ones, it's Reviews of the Dead, which is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, you can add me at David Michigan Garrett Jr. Twitter, I'm Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, David OSU. Instagram, I'm David OSU87. And if you want to download and use the FlickChat app, my join code for my podcast is Journey with a Cinephile. Now, for next week, I know I kind of alluded to this briefly on the last episode. I'm going to do a St. Paddy's Day type theme there where I'm going to go ahead and watch probably Leprechaun 2 because that one I have not done a you know written review for. So I think I'll go ahead and watch that as one of the featured reviews. And then on top of that, I'm going to watch the Into the Dark episode on Hulu for March, which I believe is called Crawlers. So I think those are going to be the two for that. And then I'll get back to my normal episodes you know, following that episode. But I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me again. I hope you have a great day with whatever you're doing. And this is David Garrett Jr. signing off.